Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Bible reading is taken from Judges 4, 1 to 24. Judges 4, 1 to 24. At the end of this reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord. Please kindly respond with thanks be to God. Judges 4, from verse 1 to 24. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Herod was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Caesarea, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Labidot, was leading Israel at that time. She held courts under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, t- go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Caesarea, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give them into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours. For the Lord will deliver Caesarea into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Then there, Barak summoned Zebulon and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim, near Kadesh. When they, when they told Caesarea that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Caesarea summoned from Harosheth Hagoyim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Caesarea into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Caesarea got down from his chariots and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoim, and all Caesarea's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Caesarea, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber, the Kenites. Jael went out to meet Caesarea and said to him, Come, my lord, come in, don't be afraid. 
So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If anyone comes and asks you, is there anyone there, say no. But Jael, Herbert's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then, Barak came in pursuit of Caesarea and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you are looking for. So he went in with her and there lay Caesarea with a, pe- with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Thank you. And uh, for those of us who are new here, thanks for coming. We are happy to have you. Uh, Today, and just for people who have not been here for a while or you're coming for the first time, we've been looking through the book of Judges, um, it's a book in the Old Testament, um, and we're trying to see how the, 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 the basic uh, reason for this series is a six-part series, so today's the third one. We're basically trying to see, we're, we're passionate about, um, want to see renewal in our city, want to see renewal in our city. And we want to see whether the Bible has something to say about it. And we think the book of Judges does. Now, it has something to say about it in the opposite direction, but nonetheless, something to say about it. And so we've been looking at that uh, since we, we'd already done a series in the book of John at the beginning of the year and a short series with the parables of Luke. So this one is a six-part series before the next one during the summer. Uh, in Nigeria, summer it's always summer, isn't it? What kind of, I don't know what's. Anyway, if you've not noticed, so we're, we're looking at that today. If you've not noticed, um, it seems like Western democracies are in trouble. We're facing an existential crisis. Now, why do I say that? I don't know how many of us know about something called the Cold War, but at a certain time in the 20th century, there were two basic philosophies of uh, human government that two superpowers had, probably after the Second World War. One was communism. And that was more towards the east, and it was the Soviet Union, what comprises of what we have, Russia, and many of the Baltic states that we have today. And then the other was Western democracies, where you had capitalism, which was really championed by the United States, but really most of Western Europe as well. Now, the Cold War was between the two of them. It wasn't a war that was fought with guns, but much more ideologies and actually spies and all of those things. Now... The Soviet Union broke apart in 1989. The Berlin Wall, which was a symbol of um, communist enclosure um, in, in Germany, which divided Germany into the East and West, that fell in 1989. And someone wrote a book, a guy called Francis Fukuyama, wrote a book, The End of History in 1989, and it was almost like a question. In 92, he wrote another book, The End of History and The Last Man. And what he was saying was that the advent, or what he was arguing, was that the advent of Western liberal democracies may have signaled the end of humanity's sociocultural evolution and the final form of government. In other words, communism has been defeated. We've seen that Western liberal democracies built on capitalism is now the way to go. Once we spread that throughout all the world, 
evolution, at least socio-cultural evolution, has come to its end. It's come to its final apex, and we'll see flourishing throughout the whole city and throughout the whole world. Now, we'll start, that's there to unravel, because that was tried. We found out that it was tried in other parts of the world, and it didn't do very, very well. In fact, a lot of the um, countries that emerged from the Soviet Union started, tried it, it just built up cronies. In some other places, it actually worked a terrible disaster. We think of Iraq after the war. We think of uh, Afghanistan is not really working. And when we think of even Africa, really, it was just, you know, we, we don't know. We did our 1999 thing and look at where we are today. So it's not really worked in some places. Some other places it's been a disaster. But then, okay, you can say, well, it's the end of the Western world. But none of the founding fathers of Western democracy saw, or at least it would have been their nightmare, to have the rise and the election of the popular demagogues we are having now. You know, people who, it's a populist movement that promises people so many different things, but then starts to um, appeal to the worst and the most debased part of human beings. How did this happen? Well, let me give you a little bit of, maybe one of the reasons why I think it happened. Essentially, some would classify democracies to be that, I mean, the most significant on, uh, thing about democracy is that the power, Western democracy, is that the power resides in the people. And that's why the people vote for their government. The people put their government there, they are representatives of the people. So this whole, the voice of the people is the voice of God. But it wasn't seen to be so. You see, the narrative sold to voters was that when, it was, when, 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 when the founding fathers built this thing, what they were pushing to people was to think about what would be a just and flourishing society, and not just the enrichment of a human being. Now, over a period of time, that tide has changed. What you then see that is sold to people is actually the enrichment of the individual and not so much thinking about the flourishing of a just society. And as that narrative changed, politicians felt that they had to promise them, and also meet the demand. So I was voted in because I promised this thing to enrich you. So now I have to work tirelessly to ensure that you reach that goal. Step one. Then the next step was, politicians started seeing that these things were very difficult. All these things I promised, very difficult to meet. So they will promise with the hopes that they will meet them. And then step three, Politicians started promising so many things without any intention of trying to deliver any of it at all. Now, you throw that to people. If you're having a very tough life, this guy comes and he tells you, hey, what's happening? You don't have gutters in your road? I'll remove the gutters. Your side road that means nothing to this economy whatsoever, I'll fix it for you. You're having two pieces of meat? In one day, you'll have five. In fact, not only do they even promise you that, they start giving you bags of rice. And so, all of a sudden, if you're having a tough time, what starts to happen is, we don't start thinking of the collective, we start channeling all our hopes into this one individual. In presidential systems of democracies, that has worked out in fact that we don't even know who, if I ask you here, who is your senator for your district? Who is the House of Rep member? In fact, some of you will think, oh, I thought senators were also House of Rep members. Local council, all of those things, it doesn't matter. The only election that matters is what? The president. It's one person. We find it easier to channel our hopes towards one person 
than the other. Even in democracies where it's a parliamentary system and you are actually electing a member of parliament, your member of parliament is really the prime minister that matters, even though you're never voting for a prime minister. You see, the myth of this one man, one woman that can change everything, we're so drawn to it. It's the 1970s Bruce Lee who is able to kill 200 people. Or the 1980s actor never dies, who is able to kill 2,000 people on his own. In basketball, it's all about the franchise player. He's going to save the whole day. The business mogul who built an empire without anybody. He just built it somehow. Magic wand. And even when we think about authors, we never ever think about the editors. The commanding general, or my favorite, that wonderful pastor. You see, we are wired to think that success and salvation is always attributed to the one and not the many. Now, can I say right from the get-go, if we are going to see the social, the spiritual, social, and cultural renewal in this city that we long for, there have to be collaborations everywhere. It cannot be down to a handful of few people. And so in this story that we see in the book of Judges, we're going to learn exactly that, that salvation is a collaborative project. Now, the book of Judges is the context of the children of Israel who God had promised Abraham, a man, that he was going to do, undo the mess that the world had created. He was going to do it through him, but he was going to do it through his offspring, which would then lead to a nation. Now, that nation, that offspring was Isaac. Isaac gave birth to Jacob, Jacob gave birth to 12 sons. They were eventually, one of the sons went into Egypt. All the rest of the family then went into Egypt, 70 of them. And then they multiplied, multiplied, 400 years. They were now a nation under oppression. And then God delivered them from there and promised them a, a land that he was going to take them to. And Joshua eventually gets them into that land. But now that they're in the land, because for you to have a nation, you need a people, you need, la you need a land, you need laws, and you need a, law, a, a, a king or a lord. He's given them the laws when they come out of Egypt. He's now brought them into the promised land, but there is a problem. Everybody was doing as they like. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. That's the setting of the book of Judges. Now, we've looked at two judges. Uh, sorry, we looked at um, the bigger problem that they had, which was idolatry, and they kept going in this cycle. We looked at the first judge, even though there are two judges that have come. There was Othniel, we didn't look at that, but we looked at Ehud last week. And now we're going to look at another judge. But the whole theme and this sermon is titled Collaborative Salvation. It will be treated under three headings. Collaborative Israel, Collaborative Church, and Collaborative God. Collaborative Israel, Collaborative Church, and Collaborative God. So let's get into the first one. Now notice in verse 1, we have that word again, again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, and he says this because Ehud was dead. In the previous ones, it was, we first heard the evil that they did when Othniel was there. God delivered them through him. Then they did evil again, as we looked at, under Ehud. And now, because Ehud has died, They've committed evil again, and God has now judged them by putting them under the oppression of another king. This time is Jabin, the king of Canaan. And they're under this king. The first time was eight years oppression. The next was 18 years, and now they're more wicked, so they're now 20 years, as we see in verse 3. You may begin to start asking yourself, 
Haven't they learned anything by now? Surely they should have seen what happened to their ancestors. If I was like them, I would never do that. I would learn, really. You see, that's a, a misunderstanding and an underestimation of how sin works. Have you ever moved into a house? You moved, so your last house you didn't really like, and this time you're going to make this one. This one is going to be fantastic because the thing I hated the most about the last house was wall geckos. I remember a friend's house that I was in. She went to a particular church that I will not name, but they pray a lot, and she was praying, and she saw a wall gecko, and she said, who sent you? Fall down and die. All right? Now, whether we express our frustration there in that way or not, I don't know about you. I hate wall geckos. And every house I move into, at least in Nigeria, I always say, this time is not going to have wall geckos. And I don't know. The landlords do it such a way that the first time you come, you never go and look at the house, the first viewing, and never see wall geckos, do you? No, you don't. You even go in the first week, you're inviting people, no wall geckos. The first month, you invite people, no wall geckos, and then like three months down the line, you see those terrible... How did they get in? You thought you blocked all the holes, you did everything, but somehow they appear. And you chase that particular one that you... And you kill it, and after what happens? There are two in your room. Wall geckos, horrible things. And then, not only the wall geckos inside, then there are the lizards outside. Lizards, they are all there. Both the green ones and then the blue and the horrible. And you know what? That's what sin is like. You think you've actually gotten rid of this particular one. Once you start to declare that victory, you feel, ah, no, I'm free from this thing. Watch out. It's coming in the other room. Sin has its way of masking itself. It's almost like it can change. It's, it's, it's almost like a chameleon. Once you start thinking that, no, I have no problem with it, it shows itself in another way. But there's something else to notice here. It said in verse 1 that the Israelites, the Israelites did evil. Not just an individual person, but there was a mutual committing of sin. In fact, I would argue a mutual helping of one another. Because often you think, oh, well, it was that guy sinned there, that guy sinned there, and the some total of it was that the Israelites sinned. It wasn't just that. You see, it's almost like developing a, um, an eco, well, ecosystem, not the best word. What was actually Bassi's uh, word in um, her soundtrack to, was it Goldfinger? Yes, Goldfinger. Where he said, beware of his web of sin. There's a web of sin that actually there's an interconnection of sin that comes between individuals. How does that work out? Well, it works out with how do you help someone uh, commit sin? Well, you probably give uh, someone bad advice. Or it could be that you help someone rationalize their sin. Or where you do sin, that, see sin that is explicit, you don't rebuke in the guise of not wanting to judge. Or sometimes it's actually good not to judge. Why? Because you are a worse sinner than that person in that thing. And so you can't actually rebuke the person. You see, how do you have porn? Because sin is never is always personal, but never private. How does porn come? You can say, well, it's because somebody was watching it, and so that guy is actually he's actually, he's the one that is responsible for it. Yeah, the guy that is watching it is watching it, is responsible for it, but he never, he never made it. Some people made the porn. And you say, well, those people were the, okay, that, those people that made the porn and the person that's watching it. Uh, actually, what about the people who raised the funds or gave the funds to actually make that movie? 
And what about the channels that actually allow for it to be disseminated? There is a complex web of sin that always exists. We are never totally just at fault, even though we are totally responsible before God. And that's why it didn't just say that God judged individual people. It said that so, in verse 2, the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan. Now let's run through, because the people then cried out to God, as we see in verse 3. Let's run through the whole story. What happened? There are about four people that we need to meet. In verse 2, we meet a guy called Caesarea. Caesarea is the commander of the army. Why Caesarea? We're not talking about the king. Well, because he's really the main bad guy. And he's actually going to be central in this story. Now, on account of Caesarea's oppression, notice he says that Caesarea was a cruel, he cruelly oppressed them in verse 3. In fact, if we read chapter 5, there's reason to believe that um, Caesarea actually raping some of the people at uh, chapter 5 there. But he was so cruel, on account of this, we meet another person, Deborah. Deborah, who is most unlikely judge you would ever see. Why? One, Deborah, as we can see, is a woman. Second, Deborah, unlike all the other judges, is a prophet. Third, as we see in verse 4, she was already leading, or another word, judging Israel at the time. She used to hold court. She used to settle disputes, as we see in verse 5. So Deborah is now moved to do something about the situation. What does Deborah do? Deborah calls for Barak. So that if Caesar is the commander of Jabin, Deborah now calls for someone who would also act as Caesar's counterpart, who is also a commander. And she orders him to go to battle with Caesar. We see that in verse 10 and verse 6. Now Caesar goes. Uh, um, uh, um, Barak goes into battle with Caesarea in verses 12 to 14. Not only does he go, he totally routes him. They win convincingly, as we see in verse 16. But Caesarea manages to escape. Verse 15b, it says that he fled. Caesarea, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Caesarea and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Caesarea did a bit like Ojuku, got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So we meet Caesarea, we've met Deborah, we've met Barak. But I want to turn your eyes to verse 11. Because now this, you know, this story about Barak, Deborah, Caesarea, it's a bit tantalizing. And somewhere in the middle of the story, before we even get to the battle, we're now rudely interrupted with this Heber, the Kenite, who had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim, near Kedesh. And then you get to verse 12. When they told Caesar, it's like, so why is that there? I mean, why did you have to tell us about a guy who left his own people and then moved and then pitched his tent somewhere else? Why this kind, this rude interpretation? It almost seems like a redundancy in this nice flow of the passage. Now, if there's one thing you need to know about the biblical writers, there are many things. One thing they're not is people who waste ink. Because this has a lot to do with the story, as we see in verses 17 to 23. Because the guy, Heber, has a wife. And that wife is called Gile. And it's Gile, because of an alliance between the king, King Jabin, and her husband, she's able to bring Caesar, Caesar and, you know, um, tease him into 
a false sense of safety and eventually she kills the guy in a very, very nasty way, really. Terrible. And all of this is to because Barak is pursuing, but this fulfills the prophecy that Deborah gives in verse 9, that it's not you that's going to kill this guy. He's going to fall into the hands of a woman, an absolute humiliation. Now, this eventually then leads to verse 23-24, when Jabin himself is now defeated. They are subdued, and eventually they are all defeated. The Israelites get their, their victory. So if I was to ask, um, in Jabin's defeat, in Canaan's defeat, and Israel's victory, which one of these three people that we mentioned, which one of them is most crucial to this victory? If you think it's Deborah, raise up your hand. Okay. That's one of the women that would be, all right, there's one more to come. If you think it's Barak, raise up your hand. If you think it is Jael, raise up your hand. Yemi raise up his hand, finally. I know, I, I've cheated. I've already told you the point of the whole thing by the beginning of the introduction. <laughs> so, of course, yes. The answer is none. What we've seen is, from the beginning, there's collaborative sin, but at the end of the day, there is collaborative victory. Now, what does this mean for us who are non-Israelites? That takes me to my second point. Remember in the beginning, in the introduction, I said that we have this fascination with the Lone Ranger Christian, the Lone Ranger victor. And we have to ask ourselves a question because we're looking for renewal in this city. Why is it that we're in a situation that we have more churches in Lagos than at any time that we've ever had, and we're probably at our lowest ebb morally? We're not having any renewal. Now, you can knock the hashtag Hallelujah Challenge all you want, but initiatives like these, or national days of prayer, are responses to the fact that things are not all right. And we feel, in fact, we know, that things can only get better if the church is involved. That's true. I totally believe that. The church must be involved. But can I say this? Not when our churches are structured in this way. What do I mean by that? You see, perhaps we are more attracted to the Othniel, to the Ehud, or to the Gideon, to the Samson, Stories. Why? Because it really brings up one person. Far too often, our churches have been structured in this way. When you think of a church, immediately what do you think of? Who is the pastor there? Now, I think that's actually giving way to another one. But why has that happened? Because it's not just the fact that we went there and we thought the pastor actually spoke well, but it is that we print banners of the pastor, we put the faces there, everything, the it's one thing to be the fourth face. It's another thing to be the only face. And again, it's not just, you can't just say the pastors are the ones that are guilty. We actually like it this way. Or take now, I said the pastors are giving away, they're actually giving away now to the faces of big time gospel musicians. We have this new trend where a musician, a gospel big musician comes in, he leads worship in this church this week. Then he knows, goes to another church, and he leaves worship in that church next week. Now, in, one, in that church, they would, act, they would invite one musician this week. Then they would invite another musician this week. No, they have a music team, but they have to bring in a star. Because, presumably, the people there are not able to bring down the presence of God. We need a star, because stars dwell in the heavens. So stars are closer to God, so they can bring down the presence of God. And so now, it's either who is the music director, who is the big music star there, or who 
is the pastor there? Maybe we would have liked for either Deborah or Barak to be the star of the story, the leader that goes ahead and, you know, conquers everything. But Barak is not a prophet. And Deborah is not a warrior. The leaders needed each other. In fact, Barak said to Deborah, if you don't go with me, I will not go. And Deborah said, certainly I will go with you. But she didn't fight. And you say, well, okay, I understand. Let the leaders collaborate. The God's generals. They are the people that we need. And then, you say, okay, well, there's Barak and there's Deborah, the leaders. But what about Jael? Jael is not a recognized leader. She's the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Who are even the Kenites? They're not even a tribe of Israel. They descended from Moses' father-in-law. They are even outsiders. And she's not the head of the home. It, she's the woman there. And yet, she's the one that killed Caesar. That triggered the whole thing. Now, you may be saying, but well, you see, we have this example. We have the big examples of Martin Luther, John Calvin, Augustine, you know. And even in the Bible, Peter, oh, no, no, no. What about Paul? Paul. Paul is always seen as the hero, isn't he? Paul did everything. He was the one that transformed the whole Roman world by taking the message of the church. Wrong. One of my favorite um, verses in all of scripture is Romans 16, verse 13. Romans 16, verse 13. Uh, let me read it to you. Romans 16, verse 13. It says, um, Paul says this. He says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Ebanki, Yarufi. That's what Paul is saying. Yarufi. Why? And I start thinking, I don't know if you've been part of maybe fellowship movements here and there's one small. There's always something. Young people gather together, we're like 16, 17, we're like, but there's always one person's mom, maybe the person who we meet, their house, there's always one mom who is sitting somewhere in the corner. Yarufi. By the time we all finish, ah, Yarufi, what food is going on here? She's already put something. Yarufi brings that wonderful ayamashi, you know, this kind that when they open the pot like this, when you open the pot, you only see the oil on top. You don't see anything. Absolutely nothing. And you're like, what could be going on in this place? But then you have to get this big spoon, right? The big spoon is the thing that it uploads all the secrets. You just put it in there. She has this systematic way. She puts it in there, brings it up. You just see shaki. She allows the shaki to go down. She does this again. She's going to have more. And then she allows her to go down. You now see one egg like this. Ah! Iyarufi. And you see, there's something about her food that by the time I eat it, Paul was thinking, there's something about Iyarufi's food like this. When I... That's what took him to the second, uh, to the third heavens. <laughs> Yarufi's food. Now, on, you will never know about this woman. Look, in Romans 16, Paul mentions about 28 different people. He's talking to the Roman church. He mentions about three households. He mentions, there's a guy, I think he's Nereus. He can't even remember his sister's name. He said, greet Nereus and also her sister as well, his sister as well. You know when you see a guy that you've seen, that you knew before, but you can't really remember his name. Hey, chairman, how now? That's kind of what Paul was doing. 
He can't remember her name, but she was relevant. Rufus's mother, Rufus's mother was relevant for the ministry. It may be that some go forward, yes, but it doesn't make the ones that we don't know less relevant. When Paul then writes much more theologically in 1 Corinthians 20 to 21, and he then relates the church as a body, he starts to ask certain questions. I mean, he's asking, for instance, that if the body is many parts, but one body, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, he even says, if you check verse 19, if they were all one part, where would they be? He's saying, no, no. Imagine as we are here today, we open the door, Tomah comes in, Jumaker comes in, and then a Bigfoot enters. What are a Bigfoot? I mean, it doesn't have a head, nose, no touch, it's just one foot. It walks in. I'll tell you what's going to happen. When it walks in, everybody's going to run out. <laughs> have you ever seen a foot existing on its own before? Paul said, what if it's one? Or an ear kind of crawls in. No, he says, if we see that, we'll think aliens have invaded the world. Run! This is weird. Paul said that when a church is structured in a way that a pastor is the only main person that is there, this is weird. What should you do? Run! Because you are not meant to um, have renewal by only Barak going. In fact, if you read chapter 5, Verse 7 to 9, when uh, Deborah then writes a song about what has happened, you'll see that Deborah is saying, look, villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. I arose, a mother in Israel. Is she going to solve everything? No, she played her role as a leader. She said, God chose new leaders. Other leaders came. When war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. My heart is with Israel's princes, leaders, with willing who? volunteers among the people. Everyone playing their own part. That's why Paul is saying, look, if the, if the church must function properly, as you see in Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16, if leaders are leading well, leaders are gifts that are given to the church who help to develop the church, they equip the church for what? The work of the ministry. Not that the leaders alone. Oh, it's our job to do the ministry. No. If the church is well equipped, then the uh, people of the church are the ones that do the ministry. He says, then God, um, the, uh, we come to a place of maturity. We see maturity when the church is working well. We will no longer be infants tossed back, uh, tossed back and forth uh, by the waves and blo- uh, blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Someone asked me, how do I know on Friday? How do I know how do I know how to av- what is false doctrine? How do I avoid it? Which is a very, very important question. Well, I first say the environment that you're in matters. If it's, if it's actually working well, the body is actually functioning well, Paul says that that would help you to actually avoid false doctrine. That is where you see accountability, speaking the truth in love. And then there's love in that community. Grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, Ephesians 4 to 11. You see, when leaders lead well, we can be more effective missionally. Don't forget, it was when Deborah arose, the mother in Israel, that Barak, she was able to call Barak, and then she was able to gather other leaders and the volunteers, and then they went on the mission to destroy God's enemies. If we want to see real renewal 
in this city, first of all, we have to have churches that are working well, leaders doing what leaders should do, but those who are not positionally leaders doing what they should do. If we have this kind of church, and many of those kinds of churches multiplied in this city, read my lips, we will see renewal. Renewal doesn't just come because you multiply churches. Renewal comes because you multiply healthy churches. Third point. There's something else that we mustn't miss. Third point, collaborative God. Now, I don't know, communism, as I was saying, communism was basically a system of society that turned the totalitarian state into a God. Fascism also is an ideology that basically turns an ethnicity into a God. See, part of our problem in Nigeria is this has always been this problem of ethnocentrism. We see our ethnicity as inherently superior to others. And guess what? Because you must watch out for this. It is possible that we say, oh, no, the individual, let's not worship ourselves individually. But you can also be so part of the church that you can actually begin to worship your own church. What do I mean? You see, we can be so... Uh, we can so be so into the fact that we run our things according to the scriptural pattern. We don't unduly place our leaders over others, yes. Our doctrine is erotight. We found the balance between old and new Christianity, between order and spontaneity, between expressive and reverential worship. Also that when we pray, this is how our prayer goes. God, we thank you that we are not like other churches, dry, dead churches white garment churches, unnecessarily emotional churches, two doctrinaire churches, or even like this prosperity church. You see, that is the emergence of what you call the sin of tribalism. What's the sin of tribalism? You make your tribe the sum total, the, the most important thing, in fact, the flawless thing, your God. And this results in something. It's destructive because it blinds your faults it blinds you to your faults and to the strengths of other tribes while magnifying your strengths and the faults of others. I'll say that again. The sin of tribalism leads to this. It blinds you to your faults and the strengths of others while magnifying your strengths and the faults of others. We must always be very careful about this. God help us as City Church. If we ever become anything good, that we start to think, God loves us because we are city church. And then we start to look down on others. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't saying that you don't see the faults that are there. But you don't see yourself as inherently superior because you don't have those faults. And guess what? You will have your own faults. Because the moment you start thinking like that, you will not be aware of your own faults. May God help us. What's the key? Well, the key is always to worship another. When Deborah, the song I was telling you about in verse, five, uh, verse 7 to 9, or when she was talking about the volunteers and all of those things, she acknowledged the volunteers, she acknowledged the leaders. Do you know how she ended it? She said, praise Yahweh, or hallelujah. She acknowledged everyone's part, but she did not praise anyone. Why? Well, go back to the, to the, verse that, uh, to the, uh, to the story we're reading. Notice in verse 9, Barak cannot take the glory for the victory. Yes, not just because it was going to be, he's going to be delivered into 
uh, uh, the scissor was going to be delivered into a woman's hand. But who delivered the uh, scissor into the woman's hand? The Lord. And in fact, when Deborah summoned Barak in verse 9, uh, in verse 6b, she said, it is the Lord that is commanding you. Deborah also charges Barak with the fact that the Lord is giving Caesar into your hands, verse 14. And you can even check verse 7 as well, 7b. And we see that it was the Lord who routed Caesar in verse 15. And ultimately, it was God that subdued the uh, Jabin, the Canaanite king. Make no mistake about it. God is the one who always wins the victory. It's always God. Now, God chooses to use human hands. So maybe you're here and somebody has provided an ultimate or timely provision for something that you needed. They were able to give you the funds because you didn't have it. Or someone provided timely counsel, whether it was in your marriage or maybe whether it was into something. Or someone, because you were in a terrible situation, provided timely deliverance. Yes, you should thank those people, but the timely provision wasn't ultimately because of human generosity. It's because God gave through that person. The timely counsel wasn't ultimately because of human wisdom, because he's the fountain of all wisdom. And the timely deliverance was not because of human strength. It's always God. Now, but with all these collaborative things that we're talking about, the ultimate deliverance that this God brings, though, seems not to be collaborative. Because at the end of the day, the man that brings that ultimate salvation, how does he do it? He has friends, but all the friends, what? Deserted him. There were other people there that could join, but instead of joining, they did what? They mocked him. But he believed in God, didn't he? But he said on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No collaboration for his salvation, no human collaboration for his salvation, so that those human beings that he calls that are after him and trust and believe in him will now know that they don't have to use their own singular strength, their own singular wisdom to achieve the salvation that their city needs. And that's so true about Jesus' cross and resurrection except that it was also a collaborative thing. You see, God actually did collaborate. With which human, you would say, well, no, none of us. Or maybe he was with angels. No, not with angels. Then who did God collaborate with? We see God delivering uh, Israel here. This is the picture of the greater salvation. Who did God collaborate with? And the sure answer is God collaborated with himself. The mission to save the world was a collaborative project of the community of God. Because don't forget, as Christians, we believe this weird thing, which says that God is a community. God is one being, but God is also three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to achieve the salvation, he said, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption to sonship. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The Father appoints, the Son atones, and the Spirit applies. It's all of God. Who says it is God? Who is God? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Why does God call us to be collaborative in our pursuit, our missional pursuit? Why does he want a community first, and then the community is the one that, mission, that goes out missionally? Well, because the community of Jesus Christ must ape the community of God as well. That is the ultimate community, the Trinity. And now we are called. Just as, that's why it says, let them be one, just as you and I are one. Salvation is always collaborative. Now, it's not collaborative when you come to him. He calls you to him, but when he calls you to him, he sends you into his body. And we, I pray if you have someone here who is still considering what it is to be saved. Well, if you want to be part of this family, his family, his, to become his son, he's giving you his son, would you come? But to be renewed by his son, he always does this in community. You can't be a Lone Ranger Christian. We can talk about the Lone Ranger pastors. We can talk about that. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Well, I'll say this. Don't give up on the church. Find a healthy church. But God always wants to do his work, his mission, through people who are set in community. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves to you. You are such a gracious and wonderful God that you speak to us in this way. And we know that there may be hearts here who have been touched, O oh Lord, that want to surrender their lives to Christ, who are eager to find rest. As Augustine says, that our hearts are restless until they find our rest in thee. Father, draw them to you. But we also pray, Lord God, for this church and for anyone here who is still trying to live as an individual, who would love to see their relationship with you as the most important thing. Help us, oh God, to see that our relationship with you individually, but our relationship with you collectively are not meant to, they're not meant to be against each other, but they're meant to work with each other. And deliver our city, O oh Lord, deliver our churches, we pray. Deliver this church from that sin, that, that lure that always wants us to stand alone. If in any way, O oh Lord, we have not honored the members of the churches or members of our church who actually give so much and yet are not recognized. Help us with people who God who show the best honor to such of those people. And help us to work well where all joints are supplying, where everything, the Spirit is able to make this body function under the head of the one who died and rose again. Helping us to know that even Jesus himself was raised by the Spirit of God. And so that you raise us up unto new life through that Jesus in whom we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos. <laughs>